And uh, the rest of us, why don't you grab a Bible? I was hoping to hear like a, yes, a Bible. Uh, And you can turn to John chapter 12 is uh, where we're going to be this morning. So go ahead and flip there, John 12. Uh, Some of you may follow our our social media accounts, and I posted a a picture that, that was asking the question, what is Jesus worth to you? And, and uh, if not, well, I'm going to ask that question now, just to think about that. What is Jesus worth to you? And I know probably most of us, um, your gut reaction would be to say, well, Jesus is worth everything. I mean, he's, he's it. He is everything. He is worth everything to me. Uh, most of us, if we like, just went around and asked, well, what is Jesus worth to you? We would probably all answer that way. But I'm uh, by nature a cynical person, and, and I would probably, even to my own answer, I would go, but do I actually mean that? What is Jesus worth to you? He's worth everything, but, but is he? Do you actually mean that? And I, I guess then, do our lives reflect the answer that we would actually give to that? If we go, yes, Jesus is worth everything, if we examine each one of our lives and the actions and the things that we say and the things that we do... I think actually our, our actions and our words reflect what we actually think about Jesus. So our text today, we're going to see this on display. What is Jesus worth to us? And, and the scenario is a dinner party. And we're going to see Jesus attend a dinner party. And we're going to see two very different answers to that question from two d- different people. We're going to see how Mary responds to Jesus and also how Judas responds to Jesus And the text is meant to kind of display them as opposites. Here's two opposite reactions to how much is Jesus worth to you. So let's start reading. John chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 1, it says this, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So here's some background uh, setup for the passage. We're told a couple of really significant things. It's now six days before the Passover. So if you remember, when did Jesus die? He died during the Passover. So we we are now in, in the timeline. We're six days away from Jesus being crucified. And, and we were told earlier in, in the end of chapter 11 that the Passover was nearing, but now it's kind of like John is saying, hey, it's here. We're like less than a week away from the, the climax of this whole book. This is the last week of Jesus' life before he is arrested and crucified, and we're meant to kind of feel this tension building. And so we're told Jesus comes to Bethany, which if you remember is two miles Uh, from Jerusalem and you know we've called this the danger zone right because uh, now people are actively looking to arrest Jesus and murder him right if you remember last week the the council the Sanhedrin they decided okay we got to kill Jesus and so now Jesus has been in the wilderness away from um, all of that danger but now he comes to Bethany just two miles from Jerusalem and we're told that he comes to a dinner party. And Lazarus is there, who he raised from the dead. Mary and Martha are there. Um, scholars think that most likely this is a dinner uh, in honor of Jesus 
for raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, this is recorded in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, but some of the details are different, but that's actually, it doesn't actually change or it's not a scandal at all. In Matthew and Mark's um, account, it's a guy named um, Simon who hosts this party. And the reason that's not an issue is we're never told Mary and Martha and Lazarus host it, we're just told they're there. Right? So it's the same account. In Matthew and Mark, there's a guy who hosts a party, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there, and it seems to be that it's in honor of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I am, because I'm so curious, I'm like, what would it be like to be at a dinner party with a guy that had been dead for four days? Can you imagine that? Like, I, can I sit next to Lazarus? I have a bunch of questions for him. <laughs> what was it like? Where did you go? What happened? What was the experience of being raised? Like, was it like a, were you sucked back to like, how did that work, right? And here is what is amazing, but also frustrating about John. We aren't given any details. He like mentions that, yeah, Lazarus was there. And that's the last we ever hear about Lazarus. Why? Because Lazarus isn't that important. Jesus is the one who's important. Now we're told that Uh, Martha was serving, which if you know the Bible, typical Martha, right? She's the one that's always serving. And we're told that Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus. Now, in that culture, you didn't sit on a chair at a table. You actually almost, uh, you reclined. You laid down and kind of propped on one arm with your feet extended away from the table. And that's how you would eat. You would eat lying down, essentially. So if anyone is ever like, you shouldn't eat in bed, be like, Jesus eight lying down, so it's good enough for me. But that's culturally what you did. Your just feet were extended away, and you would all recline and, and kind of lay down around the table. So that's, that's the setting, if you can imagine, right? There's people who are reclining, and they're sitting around the, the table. Lazarus is there, and Martha is helping to serve this dinner. Verse 3, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So imagine that, right? The dinner party is going on and who knows, they're discussing things and people are asking Jesus questions and Martha is kind of in the background serving. And then in this incredible act of worship, Mary comes in and and we're told that she has a pound of expensive uh, ointment, most likely scholars say uh, the wording there is like half a liter. So if you can imagine half a liter of this expensive ointment made from pure nard, which in my mind, I'm like, that sounds gross, but it wasn't. Um, It was uh, uh, prepared, this kind of uh, ointment perfume was prepared from roots and stems of an aromatic herb that was from India. And uh, it was very expensive, which we'll see in a few verses. But what would happen is that they would import this uh, very expensive ointment with perfume in it uh, from India in these sealed alabaster boxes or flasks. And basically, you would only ever open this on a special occasion. You would, you would do this. Um, Romans, the Romans, they would use it to anoint people's heads for very lavish ceremonies and things like that. Like, you didn't just like, oh, I'm going to go out and put some of my nard on. You just didn't do that. It was so expensive. So Mary comes in and she pours this. And the way it's worded is it's the entire thing, a half a liter, pours it out on Jesus' feet. And in Matthew and Mark, we're told that it was also on his head, but Jesus, or or John rather, focuses on the feet 
Because in the next chapter, we're going to see someone else stooping down and doing something with his disciples' feet. So it's foreshadowing. So he focuses on, on the feet. And then Mary, after she does this, she wipes his feet with her hair, which in that day and age was completely culturally unacceptable. Um, that was very taboo. And I, I, we're, not, we're not told, but I can almost guarantee that people around the table were saying, well, she's a loose woman. You don't let your hair down in public settings. What is Mary doing? You just didn't do that. You never did that. And so Mary is letting her hair down, wiping Jesus' feet in the middle of a meal. And, and what, what else is amazing about this is the job to wash people's feet or anoint them or anoint people's feet with ointment or wh- whatever, slaves did that. That was the job of a servant, like a respectable person didn't do that. You didn't, you didn't go near someone's feet and you didn't, if it was a woman, for sure you didn't let your hair down. And so Mary does this unbelievable act of worship. I'm sure it was, you could hear a pin drop in that dinner party. Verse four, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So here's Judas's response. And to be fair, in Mark 14, in Mark's account of this, it wasn't just Judas. It was actually almost all of the disciples who, who, who said the same thing. So we look and we're like, of course Judas said something like that. It's Judas! But in Mark's account, it's all the disciples going, what is this? Why did she do that? What a waste. And so here's Judas' argument. And and I got to say, logically, his argument makes a lot of sense. What a waste, honestly, practically. That that jar or or flask or whatever of, of ointment could have been sold, absolutely, for 300 denarii, that's, that's roughly a year's wages. So if you can imagine what you make in a year, that's how much this, this perfume cost. And so, yeah, Judas is right, actually. That could have been sold for a ton of money, and, and we could have given that all to the poor to help people who are in need. And so Judas' argument, his argument makes a lot of sense. But what is, what is his motivation? That's really important. His motivation, we're told, like some behind-the-scenes things, that his motivation is greed. He was a thief, and he stole. He, he didn't actually care about the poor at all. So Judas, we're given this glimpse that Judas was in charge of the money. They would have a money box, and as people made donations, and then they would distribute it to the poor and for expenses and things like that. Judas was in charge of that, and we're told that he would just steal from it. He would just take what he wanted. So him saying, hey, that's worth a lot of money and we could give it to the poor, right? His words, I go, yeah, I agree with what you said, Judas. But your heart, your motivation, we go, ah, that's why you said it. Because you wanted to steal it. So Judas is actually posturing as a very holy, good person. Right? So think about it. If you're in a meeting and someone's like, hey, we want to spend this X amount of money on this, Judas would be the guy that's like, I actually think that we should send that money to missionaries overseas. And we would go, oh, so holy. That's Judas. 
wow, man, yeah, you're right, Judas. We should. Oh, what a waste. And yet you look at his heart, and he's not holy at all. He's evil. So I love Jesus' response. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone. Isn't that great? Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. So Jesus tells his disciples, and Judas specifically in our passage, to leave Mary alone. Now, it's interesting. This is a notoriously hard verse to translate because Jesus says, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And you go, well, keep what? She just poured it all out. So what does Jesus mean? Leave her alone so that she can keep it for my burial. And we go, well, how, Jesus, how is she going to keep it? It's all over the floor. It's all over your feet. She's wiped it with her hair. She can't really keep it anymore. So, so what does Jesus mean? Um, Mary's actions, whether she knew it or not, was actually a symbolic preparation for Jesus' own death and burial because a lot of times how you would use an expensive ointment like this is to, um, to put it on a dead person. A, a lot of times we have our life savings in this ointment and dad died and now to honor dad, this is an example, we're going to use that ointment to anoint his body so that it kind of takes the smell off and, and so lots of times that's what it was used for. So Think about what Mary is doing, probably unaware. She is anointing Jesus before his burial, this kind of foreshadow to what's going to happen. So I think actually when Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it, keep what? I think keep the memory of what just took place. Mary's actions, right? Keep, keep Mary. I want you to keep the thrill, the gratitude, the amazement, the wonder, the love that you have for Jesus. Keep that for my burial because you're going to need it. When I'm buried, you're going to need this moment to remember. So he's like, essentially, I think that he's telling his disciples, stop ruining this memory for Mary. Right? I, don't, I don't want her to remember that you guys just came down on her. He said, leave her alone so that she can keep it for my burial. Like, why, why should anyone object if this ointment that perhaps, again, we don't know, but perhaps it would have been used to anoint Jesus' dead body in due time. Why are you objecting if Mary decides to pour it out over my feet while I'm still alive so that I, I can enjoy it? What is that to you, disciples? And in verse 8, he kind of clarifies, he says, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, Jesus is not saying like, okay, we don't have to worry about taking care of the poor because they'll always be with us. I've actually sadly heard that. Well, we don't have to worry about trying to alleviate uh, poorness and starvation. Well, because Jesus said they're always going to be with us. That's a terrible interpretation. Jesus is not saying it's not important to take care of the poor. What he's saying is, I'm soon going to be gone, and I'm going to ascend back to my Father. And so these acts of worship are very timely. You, you'll have opportunity to take care of the poor for the rest of your life, and you should, but you don't have me with you physically forever. So really, it's a simple text. There's, there's not much to unpack. There's not, there's not a whole lot of, um, you know, hidden things or Greek words or there's not th that change the meaning. It's just a very straightforward text of this dinner party and this act of worship that Mary does, but it, but it brings up the question, how much is Jesus worth to you? Because in the response to the worth of Jesus, Mary's heart was so full of wonder 
and thankfulness and joy, it overflowed into this lavish demonstration of affection for her Savior. And Judas felt none of it. Judas Judas actually valued money more than he valued Jesus, which we know because he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So Judas looks at this lavish, lavish expression of worship And he kind of postures as a holy guy. Well, we could have used this to help people. But in reality, he goes, what a waste. I could have stolen that money. So how much does Judas value Jesus? Not a lot at all. So I think there's actually two areas that we can examine to determine how much we value Jesus. There's two ways, two kind of litmus tests that we go. Again, there might be more, but based on this text, I think there's two, two areas of our lives that we can look at to answer that question, right? We would all say, Jesus is everything. Okay, well, let's examine these two areas of our lives to see if if we actually believe that. The first area is the area of our reputation. Because what Mary did was completely humiliating for herself. Think about that. Like a very intimate dinner party, she completely interrupted. She let her hair down. Which culturally, I know it's hard for us to understand because we go, how is that a big deal? But culturally, it was a massive deal. She let her hair down in front of guests. Unthinkable. You would never do that. You actually, what that was, was you bringing shame on yourself if you were ever caught behaving like that. And we're told that, that she, she pours this ointment out and, and verse 3, the end of it says, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Mary was so captivated by Jesus, she loved him so much, she wanted to honor and bless him that she did not care what others thought of her. She was willing to risk that, to risk the the shame of her actions because she's just, I just love, I want to bless Jesus. I love him so much. I don't care what anyone else thinks of me. So how much is your life dictated by your fear of what, uh, what people will think of you. And specifically, I don't mean just like your every, I mean your Christian walk, right? How much is your Christian walk, your obedience to Jesus, your life being a follower of Christ, how much, is it, how much of it is dictated by fear of what other people are going to think of me? I, I think if we're honest, it, a lot. Um, our, our walk with Jesus is often dictated by, well, how are people going to view me if I do this? And so, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but we're like, well, I don't need to, like, broadcast it to everybody. (laughs) Yes, I follow Jesus, but I'm not going to be, like, one of those weird people who are, like, really uh, intense about it. Like, Mary, Mary cared very little about what anyone else thought of her at the dinner party. Why would she? She goes, I I actually only care what Jesus thinks. I don't care what Lazarus or whoever else, Simon, who hosted her, I don't care what they think. I only care about what Jesus thinks. Um, even Paul, when you read his writing, think about Paul. He, he grew up uh, being trained by the, the greatest teachers of the law and the Pharisees. He was himself a very well-educated man. He was a Pharisee. He was born into the right tribe. He was circumcised on the right day. I mean, Paul had, every, as far as credentials, everything lined up for him. Like, he, he was the guy, and he, he talks about that in his letters. He goes, man, I was, if you want to talk about being good, according to the law, I was perfect, Paul says. 
and I was this, and I was that, and I was that. And I love that Paul in several places says, well, in that one passage, he says, and all of that, what does it mean? Nothing. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 4, because the church that he's writing to is arguing and bickering, and they're saying, well, you know, we follow Paul, and we follow Apollos, and we follow Peter. And Paul says to them, I love this, he says, but with me, it's a very small thing if I should be judged by you. Isn't that great? It's a very, I, I care this much if I'm judged by you or by any human court. I, in fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. So Paul says, you guys are bickering and arguing that you follow him and you follow him and I follow Paul and Peter's better and Apollos is better. Paul says, I care this much about that. Because I don't care at all. And I don't even judge myself, but he says, but it's Jesus who judges me. That's what's important. I don't care if you judge me or not. Even in Galatians 1, Paul says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Paul says, if I actually cared about what people thought of me and I was trying to please people, human beings, I actually wouldn't be a Christian. So I would challenge you, don't allow others, or don't allow, don't allow how others will respond or their thoughts about you sway your relationship with Jesus. And we do this all the time. I could give you countless examples, like of the person that, you know, and when we used to pass the offering bag and the offering bag goes by and the person that just pretends to put something in because so-and-so's watching, I want to pretend that I'm actually giving something. Why? Because I, I'm being judged by them. Or I've, I've actually talked with people, man, when we're worshiping, and I just feel like I want to lift my hands in worship, but what are the people behind me going to think? That's embarrassing, so I'll just kind of keep my hands in my pocket. So I'll give you a couple of, uh, of, of better examples. Um, I went to Trinity Western um, University uh, for a couple of years and then was completely broke. So, <laughs> But uh, at Trinity, they had uh, uh, chapel, and so you would go to the gym, and then they would have a time of worship, and they would bring in different speakers, and uh, I'm pretty sure it was every day. And, and so we would go, and I, I, can, I can still envision it in my mind. Uh, we would sit up in the bleachers, and there, there was a young lady who every chapel, she would be down on the floor, and she was just uh, worshiping Jesus, Sometimes she would literally lie on the floor, prostrate before the Lord, worshiping him. Other times she would just kneel and worship him. And I can remember looking over at this girl who was just so exuberant in her worship and going like, settle down. I mean, like, it's a little much, right? But man, you talk about someone who doesn't care. She could care less if everyone in the bleachers was, she, she was worshiping Jesus, like, I'm going to literally lie on the floor before my king, and I don't care if 300 college students are laughing at me. I could care less. And I'm the one, right? I, I'm ashamed of it. I'm the one going, man, get a load of her. And she was just worshiping. I don't care. Um, when I was a youth pastor, um, we were doing a, a, a series kind of through... Um, purity and what the Bible's view of sex is and why it's so important. And, and, and we did a week um, on pornography, just the dangers of uh, becoming addicted to that and how Satan is using that and, and on and on. And uh, I was leading a session with just the guys and really challenging them, like, guys, you, like, 
take it from me who's been there, you need to get a handle on this. And right, I think we were looking at where, where Jesus says, um, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And I was like, look how seriously Jesus takes it. I, I don't think literally we're supposed to gouge our eyes out. But look at, Jesus is saying, be so serious with sin. Like do drastic things to put sin to death. And so the next day I get a, a very angry call from uh, this young boy's mother and she said, what did you say to him at youth? He came home, and he took his laptop outside, and he smashed it to bits with a hammer. What did you say to him? I was like, well, um, <laughs> I'm just the youth pastor, right? <laughs> but this is what this boy did. He went home, and he said, I'm so sick of being addicted to pornography. I'm so, I just want to follow Jesus, but I keep saying that over and over, and I keep opening my laptop and looking at things. I'm, I'm going to be serious about this. And he went and he smashed his computer. And I know some of his friends were like, oh, we play Minecraft. What are you going to do? Are you crazy? And he's, no. And his mom was very angry, and we smoothed things over. But here's a guy that says, I don't care what it means. I just want to follow Jesus. Last example, and for this to make sense, you need to understand that there's a clothing brand called Obey. Okay, that'll come into play. So, um, so we, we, years and years ago, we had done some um, uh, evangelism training, and okay, how do you just start conversations with people about Jesus? And uh, I was actually walking home and saw a young man, uh, kind of, his back was to me, sitting on one of the, uh, like a bench near a bus station kind of thing. And I don't know if you've had this where you have this overwhelming uh, kind of sense from the Holy Spirit uh, saying, you need to go talk to that person. And I was kind of like making excuses right away, right? Like it's been a long morning. I just want to go home and have lunch. I don't want, who knows how long this conversation is going to take. And then it was like, and like, I don't want to bother him. He's probably going to think that I'm so crazy. Can I come talk to you about Jesus? So as I'm walking and wrestling with this, like, do I obey Jesus? Literally, the guy turned around to look at me. And what was on his hat? Obey. <laughs> I kid you not. And I was like, okay, okay, God. And here's the, the, the failure of my part. I still didn't go over because I was just, I allowed what people would think of me, and I allowed, you know, the fear of man to completely shut me down, and I just went home, and I'm still embarrassed to this day, like, man, what would have happened if I had just obeyed? But it was the fear of, what is this guy going to think? Is he going to think I'm a weirdo, and I'm one of those crazy Jesus freaks, and I don't want to, I care about my reputation? Like, Mary in this passage, she could care less what people think of her. She could care, I'm going to let my hair down. Culturally unacceptable. I'm going to actually do that to, to wipe Jesus' feet. I don't care if people think I'm a prostitute or a loose woman. doesn't bother me because Jesus is worth it. Um, even Matthew 10, um, Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who's in heaven. So when you answer the question, what is Jesus worth to me? We would all say he's worth everything. But does your life actually reflect that? Right? Or, or do you, like me, fail, right? And we go, ah, I just care so much about what people think of me. It's not worth risking my reputation and, and people's view of me. The second area that we see, right, Mary, Mary risks her reputation. 
She risks honor. She brings shame upon herself because she loves Jesus so much. And secondly, um, a good indicator of what Jesus is worth to you is how you spend your money. Mary uses a half liter of ointment that was worth a year's salary to worship Jesus. A year's salary. Think about what you make in a year. And for all of that to be used in one act of worship and obedience. And Judas argues, well, we could have used that better. But really, what was Judas's issue? He was greedy. He wanted to steal it. He was a thief. He, he actually wanted the money for himself. Jesus isn't worth a year's salary. Give that over here and then I can steal it. Do your finances, does the way that you spend money, does it reflect a heart changed by the gospel? Or if you examined your own life, are you greedy? Are you stingy? Do you only spend money on yourself? What is Jesus worth to you? Finances are a, a great test to go, where's my, where's my heart at? How do I spend my money? So I want to give you two examples in the Bible of very wealthy people who met Jesus and how they responded with their wealth. So the first example is a story in Matthew 19, and most of you know this, the story of the rich young ruler. And so we're told that um, this is a very, very, very wealthy man. And he's young, and he's a some kind of ruler. And he comes to Jesus, and he asks a, a really, really good question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life. And I love that in typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't just flat out answer him. He kind of prods and pokes a little bit. He says, well, first of all, why are you calling me good? Only God is good. So he's kind of getting at this man's response. And he says, well, uh, obey the commandments. And then Jesus names five of them, right? Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, um, honor your parents, love your neighbor. He says, just obey the commandments. And the man's response is, kept them all from a young age. Like since I was a boy, Jesus, those commandments you just listed, I've kept all of them. And so here's where Jesus kind of zeroes in and he tells the man, well, one thing you lack, sell all of your possessions, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. So what is Jesus doing? Is he actually saying that if, I, if, I, if this man gives away all of his money, that, that, that's how he earns salvation? No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is pinpointing the idol in that man's life. It's money. I mean, this guy brags that, hey, I've kept all the commandments. He hasn't even kept the first one. Don't have any other gods besides me, God says. So Jesus says, get rid of all your stuff, sell all of your possessions, and then come and follow me. And here's how it ends, Matthew 19, 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Following Jesus wasn't worth getting rid of all of his stuff. It's, it's way too costly. Maybe I'll sell some of my stuff, Jesus. Jesus says, that actually, I want you to sell all of it, give it all to the poor, and then come and follow me. And, and this man responds very sad because Jesus wasn't worth that much. Now, on the opposite side, you have the story of Zacchaeus, right, in Luke 19. And we're told Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. And so what the Romans would do when they took over uh, uh, another country 
or region or whatever, they would take over and then they would find, in this case, Jewish people and they'd say, hey, do you want to collect taxes for us? Because maybe it'll be an easier pill to swallow if it's a Jew that's collecting taxes from a Jew, so let's employ you. And then you can just collect the taxes and charge whatever you want and you can keep the difference. And so many Jewish people betrayed their own people to become tax collectors, and that's why they were hated. They said, you're working for Rome. You're working for the bad guys. So Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. Right? He's not just selling essential oil. He's got like eight other people below him selling essential oil. I'm just kidding. But he's at the top, right, of the pyramid scheme. He says, I'm, I'm going to actually have all you other guys collect taxes for me, charge whatever you want, and then I get a cut of your taxes. So talk about wealthy, very wealthy man. And Jesus comes into town, and we're told that the crowds are there, and so Zacchaeus climbs a tree to see Jesus, which first of all should, should indicate there's something going on in Zacchaeus' heart. Grown men who are chief tax collectors don't run ahead of the crowd and surely do not climb trees. You just don't do that. That's embarrassing, right? And I won't go into details, but they wore like loose robes and they didn't have underwear. It's embarrassing to climb a tree. And here's a chief tax collector, like a businessman who is climbing up a tree. I just want to see Jesus. And Jesus comes by and I love it. He stops and he looks at Zacchaeus and he says, I'm coming over to your house today. Which in that culture was, if you went and ate with someone or you stayed with them, it was a sign of, we are now friends. And I accept you. And the crowds grumble, right? We're told that they go, why would Jesus go to that guy's house? That guy's the worst. Zacchaeus is the worst. Why would you go to his house, Jesus? And so Jesus goes to his house, and we're told this in Luke 19, Uh, Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Right? Zacchaeus, of his own volition, stands up at this dinner at his house and he says, Jesus, I'm going to give away half of my stuff. And if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to pay him back four times, right? So if I defrauded that guy over there of $1,000, I'm going to give him back $4,000. Like financially, this is going to ruin Zacchaeus. He's going to lose everything because chief collectors defrauded everybody. So right, if he's like, if I've defrauded, no, Zacchaeus, you've defrauded everybody. I'm going to pay you back four times what I took from you. From a financial standpoint, Zacchaeus is ruined, And I love that Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Now, what does he mean? Does he mean, Zacchaeus, because you've given away all your money, now you achieve salvation? No, 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 no. He says, Zacchaeus, your actions are an indicator that you've received salvation. Salvation has come to this house. Look at how you are responding to me, Jesus says. So Zacchaeus responds to Jesus with his checkbook. How much is Jesus worth to him? Literally everything. Like Zacchaeus is going to lose all of his money. And he says, Jesus, I'm going to do this because I love you. In response to meeting Jesus, he backs it up by giving away all of his stuff. So look at those two examples, right? You have one wealthy man who meets Jesus and Jesus isn't quite worth enough. 
to get rid of all my stuff. Ah, not worth it. And then you meet Zacchaeus, who Jesus is worth everything. I'm just going to give everything away. So think through, how do you spend your own money? Do your finances reflect that the gospel has changed your heart? When people look at your life, can they tell that you've been radically changed by Jesus? Are you a generous person? Do you give your money away? Do you help people or do you hoard it and spend it only on yourselves? What, what really, what is Jesus worth to you? Now, to end, I have to, I have to stress this. Our motivations in this really, really matter. Your motivation to obey Jesus is, is as important, if not more important, than your actual obedience. Right? Why you're obeying Jesus matters. Here's why your motivation matters. The Pharisees could obey the law, but what was their motivation for obeying the law? Pride, prestige, power. So if you would look just not knowing a Pharisee's heart and they're obeying the law, you would go, wow, they must be pretty holy. They are obeying all the commandments. But Jesus, what does he call them? You guys are actually sons of Satan. Because their motivation was so twisted. So your, own, your motivation to obey Jesus matters a great deal. And here is what are terrible motivators. Guilt, fear, reputation, tradition, all terrible motivators. They do not lead to change that lasts. And here's what I mean. We can hear a message like this and go, oh, yes, I care way too much about my reputation, and I, I am so greedy with my money. And here is what is the common thing. We'll all leave feeling really guilty, and we'll go, I got to tithe more next week. I got I to gotta go and tell my, my coworker about Jesus, and I don't even care about what he thinks of me. And the reason that you're responding like that is because you feel guilty. Guilt is a motivator that does not lead to lasting change. Because I've seen this time and time and time again. You do a, a, a message about the importance of reading Scripture. For two or three weeks, we all read our Bibles a lot. And then we stop again. Because we're motivated by guilt. And it cannot last. And so my, my, my goal is that you don't leave here motivated that, okay, well, I'm going to, okay, what can I give away? Let's just go home and give away all of our stuff right now. That's a terrible motivation. Because maybe, maybe Jesus is not going to call you to give away all your stuff. Do you know what the greatest motivation is? It's the grace of God. That is the motivation that leads to lasting change. And here's what I mean. Um, some of you maybe have been on a cruise before. And I, I never have, but it seems delightful. But let's say that you are uh, on a cruise with your family, and for whatever reason, uh, halfway through, the, the captain makes an announcement saying, okay, we're on this Caribbean cruise, but listen, some stuff has happened, and as passengers, we all just kind of have to take turns cleaning all the bathrooms. Sorry, but it just it is what it is. So they come to you, and it's your turn. Okay, it's your turn. You, but you're like, I paid for this cruise. This is unacceptable. Why is this happening? But hey, listen, you just got to clean all the bathrooms today. It's your turn. And so you go, and you're probably swearing under your breath. I can't believe I'm on my vacation that I paid for, and I have to clean the toilets. This is unacceptable. 
Now imagine as you're cruising along and you're all taking turns cleaning the toilets that they find a castaway on an island, right? He's floating like Tom Hanks. He's floating with Wilson. Wilson! And they find him and they pull him up on, onto the ship and they've saved his life. Like he's a dead man floating in the ocean and the cruise ship sees him, plucks him up and they're like, we saved your life. And after this guy gets cleaned up and and he's fed some food and water, they say, just so you know, tomorrow you have to clean the bathrooms. What do you think his response would be? I don't care. I will clean all the bathrooms for the rest of the trip. Why? Because his life was saved. I mean, that's the motivation that is going to help you to actually follow Jesus. When you go, I know who I was, I know that I was a dead man, a dead woman, floating in the ocean, left for dead, unable to save myself, and the grace of God was extended to me, I will give all my stuff away, Jesus, I don't care. That's the motivation, people. That is why week after week, I I try and hammer the grace of God into you, because that is what motivates your obedience, not guilt. So what is Jesus worth to you? And I, I, would, I would suggest to you that when you know who you were, when you know this is the type of person I was, I was greedy, I was arrogant, I was filled with pride, I was an enemy of God, I was stuck in my sin, I was a child of Satan, and you know what Jesus went through to free you from that? The grace of God shown to you, the answer when, when people ask, what is Jesus worth to you? He's worth everything, And when the grace of God washes over you, your life then will begin to reflect that that answer in how how you view your reputation and how you spend your money. You go, I know the grace of God and I will do anything to follow Jesus. So Jesus, thank you for your word. Um, and, and like a knife, it so often just cuts right to the heart. But, but I thank you, Jesus, that our walk with you is not you just saying, well, just try and do better. You got to earn it. You got to perform. Because all of us would be hooped. None of us can live up to the, the perfect standard that you require, God. And so, Jesus, I really do pray. I I know that the tendency is when we hear a message challenging us and how we spend our money and how we live our lives and, and, and how we think people view us, I know, I know because I'm human and I've seen it enough, I know that the tendency is we all leave with our heads held down going, man, I feel really guilty. But Jesus, that is, that is a terrible motivator because it, 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 It'll lift our obedience for a little bit because we feel so bad. And then we'll just go right back to the way we were living. But Jesus, when we know the grace that you have for us, like your, your, your enemies, our sin that, that put you on the cross, and we know the grace that was just lavished onto us that we don't deserve, when that is the motivation, then, then our hearts just sing and we go, yes, I, I don't care what it costs because look at what he's done for me. 
It's going to cost you everything. Yeah, he's worth everything. So Jesus, would you do that in us? I, I, I pray that we can leave here with, actual, with our heads actually held high because we serve such a great Savior. And that we can just live in this grace that you've given us and that that would motivate our obedience, that we would go, yes, Jesus, I want to obey him because of who he is and what he's done. So I just pray, God, that we would be like Mary, um, that, that we would not care about our reputations, that people, or, or, or what people will think of us if we follow Jesus, that we wouldn't care about, you know, the snickers or the comments, or we just, we just, none of that. We would be so focused on you, Jesus, that none of that matters. And then we, I mean, we live in probably the richest time period in the history of the world, and everyone in this room, in comparison to the rest of the world, man, we are wealthy. And I pray, God, that our actions and how we respond to our money and our, our, our stuff, that it would reflect a heart that is changed by the gospel and that grace would overflow us, that we go, whatever Jesus asks of me, it's worth it because of who he is. So Jesus, you are the one that has to do this work in us. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would just continue to challenge us and convict us and strengthen us for this battle that we live in. And thank you, God, for grace that is so sweet, grace that we do not deserve. And thank you that you lavish it on us, mercies new every morning. And so help us to, to remember that often, and we just pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.